Let's look at Luke chapter 10. Pretty common story we've all grew up with. One of those um, Sunday school top stories that almost everybody knows. Um, the parable of the Good Samaritan. But it's just like the Lord just really drilled this on my heart a couple weeks ago. And so uh, I just want to share with you what he was sharing with me. Luke chapter 10 verse 25 and uh, some things I saw in there that I've not seen before. And uh, I have a feeling it will help someone. And uh, yeah. And I'm out of breath. That was some praise that we, <laughs> we lifted up. I'm just past the point I'm not going to settle, you know. And uh, I'm not settling for less than what the king has for us. And uh, I don't want you to settle. And um, we got to get a hold of him. I'm just telling you. He's the difference maker. And uh, if anything's going south in any area of your life, it's probably an area you've kept God at arm's length at. And so you've got to let him into every single part. And, uh, and so part of that is becoming vulnerable and becoming naked in front of God or even dead at times where you're like, God, <laughs> you know what I mean? Have you ever tried to help somebody but they had too much life in them? <laughs> it's like, yeah, you got too much in you still. <laughs> you need some of that to die so that you can actually be helped. And I think that's what this parable, this parable changes our mindset. It, it keeps us in check. It keeps us humble. But it also shows us have you ever, you know when you're telling somebody a story of something that happened to you, we tend to make ourselves the hero in the story. Have you, have you ever heard anybody tell a story and they weren't the vic, they weren't not the victim in the story? Like most every time when a story is unfolded, it's like it's told from the point of view that you were the hero and somebody was the villain and you overcame, you know. And Jesus is always bringing about these stories where he's putting people in a position to set them up where in these stories he tells, they put themselves in the place of the hero. And they say, this is what's going to happen. And then he flips the whole story on its head, and then they're left wondering who they are in the story. And I think this story's done that for me this time, because I try to picture myself of who I am in the story. And uh, I think I might have missed it a couple different times of, of who I actually was. Uh, in this story. But let's look at it. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Uh, now an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus, saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now eternal life was a theme that had begun to develop. There, if you read the Old Testament, there's really not, there's nearly not much said about life after death. That really doesn't come to the New Testament reality. So the Old Testament has like a, a holding place for souls called Sheol. And so people begin to speculate of what this looked like. Well, you remember the commandments are aimed, Moses' law, was always aimed at life flourishing. Right? It was if you obey these commandments, um, you're going to live and life's going to be abundant. Um, it's like what Joshua told the people. Hey, I'm going with God because God set before us life and death. So all these commands were aimed at life. And so they were thinking is if we can obey the right commands, we can access 
this eternal life. And so the thought process around first century uh, Judea and this thought process was, is how can we live forever? Because the prophets started prophesying a messianic age where nobody would ever die, where a lion would lay down with a lamb and all these good things were happening. So they were like, how do I get there? What commandment leads me there? So every commandment that was mentioned, especially with these experts in the law or whatever, they're aimed at this eternal life concept. Like, how can we not die and see these beautiful things that the prophets have been prophesying of old? So then people begin to speculate and begin to ask questions and ideas begin to be developed. And so this was a common question that had, that had come about. One, one commandment right off the bat, honor your father and mother so that you'll have longer life, right? So they took these concepts and thought, man, if we can just keep obeying the commandments, there might become a time where we never have to die. <laughs> or what commandment's most important that will extend my life on? And we all kind of fall into that, right? Like, like, like we all are trying to be obedient on the hopes that we can prolong this enemy called death, right? And so this is where they were at. They're trying to, to work through these. And so this expert in religious law or a lawyer, uh, it would be like uh, somebody that was an expert in the law of Moses that could execute exactly what Moses' thoughts and intents were and imply them to every situation. So here comes this lawyer, and he has a, um, a moment to try to get an answer. How many of you wish Jesus would just show up and you could ask him any question, right? Now, what's frustrating about the Pharisees and the lawyers and the Sadducees is they're always asking the wrong question, right? It's like, if I was with Jesus, I would hope I would be asking better questions than like, why didn't you wash your hands before you ate, right? And it's like, what is wrong? Why did you heal somebody on Saturday? It's like, it's like you can get so caught up in the details, you miss the beautiful thing of the life-giving spirit that is right in your face and it's like so don't spend your time asking the wrong questions because there's some questions God won't answer he'll just ask you another question that reveals the motive of your heart and shows you where the heart of that question really was and so that's what Jesus does Jesus answers questions with questions He's wanting us to get to the heart level fear or insecurity that's motivating our question that, that we're asking. And so he has this beautiful way of doing it and it's always with generally another question or he'll start telling a story. It'd be like, hey Jesus, why is this? Let me tell you a story. There was a man from a far country, you know, and you're like, come on Jesus, give me the answer here, right? Our, mess, our Western mindsets want the answer, but God's like, no, I want you to get lost in the story with me. I want you to get lost in what the possibilities could be because here was the reality that Jesus was bringing. Jesus was bringing the ethic of heaven down to earth. So while they're stuck in the law of Moses, he's like, I'm stuck in the law of heaven. And so he's trying to bring them, not into new knowledge, but to bring them into the, the age that is to come. That we are to bring the eschaton, or the age that's going to come, the messianic age, we're, we're pulling, we're reaching into the future, and even though it's not here, it's available. And so he's, by our faith, we're reaching into the future, and we're pulling it into the now. So basically what we're doing, we're living in the middle of Babylon, and we're saying, we won't settle to live in Babylon without heaven. And so we're pulling heaven into Babylon and saying, this is the possibility of what heaven looks like 
if we'll press into that reality. And so this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying, I operate by a different ethic than you do. So like when he's asked, he gets asked questions all the time. Uh, hey, should we pay taxes? And Jesus is like, I don't know, give me a coin. In other words, you dig in your pocket because I don't operate by that principle. Give me what's in your pocket. And you know what he's asking? Whose inscriptions on here? One of the laws of Moses was this. There shall have no graven images before me. So he's like, I don't even have in my pocket what you are actually worshiping. So while you're trying to trap me, I'm going to reveal your heart level and show you where you're actually at. See, that's what it looks like to bring heaven to earth. It's not black or white. It's not this other kind of reality. It is heaven, a different ethic, a higher way of thinking, a higher plane of thinking to bring about heaven coming to earth. Like that's what he's doing. That's what God is up to. When we think of a conqueror, we think of somebody that comes in with a sword on a white horse and just chops everything up and says, I'm in charge now. When God conquers, he actually allows the government and religious systems to kill him. And so when he gets put in the ground and gets spit back up, he's like, you guys conquer dirt through violence and you guys get more dirt. But guess what happens when you die? You go right back into dirt. So the dirt you're conquering is actually conquering you. But if you follow me in the ethic of heaven, you'll resurrect from the dead and the dirt will no longer conquer you. You'll conquer the dirt. Do you see what I'm saying? This is a, he's thinking on a much higher plane than what we're thinking. So it would serve us well that as we ask questions to actually listen and not want to hear the answer back that we want to hear back, but actually hear the answer that God wants to tell us to reveal our heart and reveal what is lacking in our wisdom or in our understanding. So the teacher says, what must I do to inherit uh, eternal life? Verse 26, and he said to them, what is written in the law? How do you understand it? The expert or the lawyer answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, this is crazy, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you'll live. Now, what provokes this next question is, 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 is kind of crazy here. It's like, um, it's like the guy goes Old Testament on him. He goes uh, Deuteronomy on him and then pulls these answers out of loving God with all your being. Is what that means with your mind, soul, strength, heart, you know, everything you have, love God, and to love your neighbor in the light of that reality as well. Uh, but watch this. So Jesus says, yeah, dude, you got it. You do those two things, you got it. But he can't be satisfied with that answer, right? Because something in his heart wants to qualify that answer and excuse him from the reality of what that answer actually entails. Right? So watch, Jesus replied, or, or so verse 29. But the expert, and we get this little tidbit here, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? <laughs> I think I've asked that a few times. <laughs> Love my neighbor? Oh, yeah, who is that? Oh, can you qualify that for me so that I can know exactly who I can't, can get away with not loving, please? <laughs> 
please tell me that, God. <laughs> like, and God just won't settle. He's so set on heaven that he keeps the bar so high. And the reason why he keeps the bar so high is not so that we feel condemned and beat up. It's that he's like, I've got so much grace for you that, through, f that for forever we're going to work towards that goal. And I'm not going to lower the bar so you can jump it. I'm going to actually raise it so that you can think like me and feel like me and be like me. So it isn't to create guilt or to get people to, well, I can never love like that. And so we ask God to forgive us perpetually and we never walk into more love. It's to raise the bar up to say, God's got grace for you to overcome this, that every commandment that the law of Moses said that is valid today was actually an opportunity for the grace of God to raise you up to that reality. That's what it was there for. And so when God raises the bar, it's not to discourage you, it's to let you know what's actually available for you to walk in. So this is what is going on here. But he said, one to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and, and who is my neighbor? Because what had happened within this realm of history is that the Jewish mindset was that we serve the one true God, Yahweh. The nations, they're all messed up. And they don't serve the one true God, Yahweh. We were chosen. We were God's firstborn out of Egypt. And we have the lock on God. But God's doing a new thing. <laughs> God's doing a new thing. And so he was opening up and, and revealing these prejudices that had developed within the people to say, you know what? I'm actually the God of all. I'm the God of everybody. And what I'm wanting to do through Israel is that you would be a light to the other nations so that they would want to serve God too. But what had happened is, is that Israel had led in idols and trusted on the systems of government and religions and different things to try to get power the way the world gets power. And so Israel had actually become a stench to the nations. And we're not the lighthouse that we're to bring in the other nations to God. So the Lord is coming in to undo these things and to change mindsets and to change ideas. How many of you know we've inherited some stuff, even us, through our raising, right? Some of us inherited prejudices. Some of us inherited bad mindsets. Some of us inherited some really bad theology. Can we just be honest with each other right here? And some of that had to fall off if we were going to keep following Jesus so we could stay in the lie that Grandma handed to us or we could learn a little bit more and say, Grandma, thank you for what you taught me, but that wasn't incorrect. It was incomplete, though, and I'm trying to go further than that, and I'm trying to step into Jesus. So you don't have to dishonor your past to step into the future, but you can't stay in the past if you're going to step into the future with God. So you have to embrace what you need to embrace, but it was incomplete. It wasn't It wasn't. It wasn't incorrect, but it was incomplete. So you have to begin to move into these other fresh territories that the Lord's wanting to show you. And so this guy thought he had it. But his next question reveals, but <clears throat> uh, can you define who neighbor is? So what do we know immediately? There's something there <laughs> hindering him obeying that second command, right? 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 There's something there hindering that second command. Um, so, so let's look at this. You got your Bible on your lap or your phone. Leviticus um, chapter 19, verse 18. I'm going to have to look on with you, Christy. Sword drill, who's got it? Leviticus 19. Oh, nobody's even looking. It's just me and you. So, wow. 
sad pastor moment. All right, uh, Leviticus 19, verse 18. Uh, it says this, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. Yeah, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So there you can see where he could get the idea that Israel is my brother. The nations are the goyim. They're the, they're the pagans. Don't touch them. You'll be unclean if you even have a conversation with them. So you can see where he gets it. But now check out verse 34. I'm going to need you to turn. I got the handheld. I'm limited. 19, verse 34. Now look what verse 34 says. See, this is why you got to keep reading in the Bible. You can't read to what you find. You got to keep reading. It's called context. It would serve us all well. Now watch this. Verse 34. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you. So read a little further in Moses and he'll give you the answer too. So Jesus is, he's pulling Leviticus 19 out saying, who's my neighbor? He's like, well, 1918. But if you'll read on down to 1934, you'll find out who else is your neighbor as well. Right? And so the answer's in Moses. It's not like Jesus is bringing this kind of this thing that he's just getting people to take a second look at what Moses actually said. Okay? Um, so Jesus replied. So he's like, okay, qualify this question. So Jesus immediately starts telling a story. Yeah. He's like, all right, who's my neighbor? And he's like, all right, I'm going to tell you a story. <laughs> and he's going to, so, so you imagine when you get told a story, you immediately put yourself in that story, right? And you start thinking in your mind, what would I do if that happened to me, right? So when Jesus tells a story, it's to make the objective subjective. <laughs> it's to pull you in so that you can put yourself there and begin to work out uh, what's going on there in your heart. So here's what Jesus does. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him up, and went off, leaving him half dead. Oh, somebody just scored high score right there. Let's go. <laughs> Praise God. All right, top score. Um, so, so this was a 17-mile trip. So the guy goes from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now the old school preachers would go, because the man left Jericho, he got beat down and beat up. You got to stay in Jerusalem. The guy's just trying to get home, okay? It's like no fault of his own here. He's going down because Jerusalem is a 3,000 feet higher elevation than Jericho. So he's not going down because he's having a moral failure here. He's just trying to get back home. He had some business in Jerusalem. And so he's working his way through this 17-mile trek. And during this trek, there is caves where wild animals and robbers would hide. So this was kind of a, you're taking a chance. But you got to get home. Hey, another score. Let's go. Um, but it begins to become this trek. It begins to become this trek where a lot could happen to you. And how many of you know, if you're serving God, there's a road in between two places that he's calling you that can sometimes be dangerous before you can get to one or the other. And so 
it doesn't mean you stay home and don't go to Jerusalem. And it don't mean you leave Jerusalem and you don't go back home. You can't let the fear of the travel keep you from the obedience of the mission, okay? And so he goes, so he's headed back home. So 17-mile trek. But this guy, what did it say? He gets beat up, stripped. Robbers got him beat up, stripped, and they've left him half dead. So this guy ain't just beat up. He's naked on the road, beat up, left in really bad shape. So enter our first character. Somebody trying to get home gets beat up, stripped. Bad thing. Verse 31. Now by chance... A priest was going down that road. So you're already, people tell a story, you already try to figure out the ending. You, you know people that do that? Where they're like, and they interrupt you and you're like, no, I'm trying to tell you. This is, it's going to take a turn you're not ready for. Oh, and then you did it. No, 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 no. Listen, listen. Let me finish the story. So your mind's already going there. Oh, a priest. As soon as they heard priest, you know what they thought. You know what they thought. You're thinking it right now. <laughs> oh, a priest. Of course he's going to take care of the situation. No brainer here. God's resolving this story awful fast. Um, the priest was going down that road, but he saw the injured man, and he passed by on the other side. Now, many wealthy priests' families lived in Jericho, so this would have been a common place for a priest to be leaving Jerusalem and going to Jericho and then coming back up to do their business there at the temple. Um, but when your business was the temple in the Old Covenant, you couldn't touch anything dead. So Jesus is revealing the faults in the current system of religion. So he said, the priest goes by and sees him. Well, he might be half dead, but he could be dead, and then I'll be unclean ritually. Mm. But which direction was he going? Was he going to Jerusalem to do his work? He was going to Jericho. He was going home. So he could have gotten unclean there, <laughs> right? But he's like, I ain't risking it. <laughs> ain't nobody did a background check. I don't know. I can't tell from his features who he is. Mm -mm. I got to stay clean. I can't allow impurity. Then I can't serve God if I touch somebody that needs help. And that's the deal. And there, the thought had gotten so extreme that they even believed if their shadow hit something unclean. So they would even position themselves where their shadows wouldn't touch something unclean. That's why when you see in Acts chapter 5, people are laying the bodies out so that Peter's shadow might hit on. It's that Jesus was turning it all around. That you could touch something unclean and because of what was on you, it could become clean. That instead of impurity becoming contagious, righteousness is going to become contagious. So Jesus has got to get to the bottom of it and he's got to tell stories like this to poignant stories to get it. So the priest was going down. He was headed from Jerusalem. He's like, I ain't touching that guy. I don't want to become unclean. That guy could be a Gentile. I don't know what's going on with him. So he moves on. So then we get to the next one. This one here is a Levite. 
And verse 32, so to a Levite, when he came up to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. So, so it kind of reads like they passed by on the other side, like they were going the way he was going. And then when they saw him, they went, ew, <laughs> and actually walked around. So the Levite was another hope because the Levite was in the priestly family, but he wouldn't have to worry about impurity because some of the audience might be hearing and go, well, the priest couldn't do it because he's got to stay ritually pure for the sacrifices. But when they heard Levite, now they're thinking, okay, this is getting fishy. Why can't nobody help Mr. Beatdown Naked Dude here? Like somebody help this guy here, right? It's like, you ever watch that show, What Would You Do? And they set these examples where a guy acts like he's having a heart attack on the street and they want to see and they've got a camera hidden and they're like, what's going to happen here? Who will help? You know? And if you watch that show, it's always the person that's down and out generally that stops and helps the person. It's almost every time. It's like everybody else is too busy to help. Like, oh man, hey, I'll call, I'll call, I'll call for you, you know. Or it's like some were even like stepping over this one episode I watched. They were like, oh gosh, get this guy out of here. And this one lady just sits there and just help. And a whole row of people in New York going down the sidewalk. I had to try to find the episode. It was a long time ago, and she couldn't even get anybody to help. And it's like. So who are we? Who are we in the story? <laughs> you know? So to a Levite, when he came up to the place, saw him pass by on the other side. But now watch this. Here's a but, right? You got to always pay attention when there's a but in the Bible. <laughs> Verse 33. Look at your neighbor and say, That's, this is a big but right here. <laughs> All right. All right. Are you ready? But a Samaritan who was traveling came to where the injured man was and when he saw him he felt compassion for him so enters in the samaritan remember the original question who's my neighbor it ain't a samaritan is not your neighbor <laughs> they had violence against each other um, People debate on what the origin of that is, but many believe that when Ezra came back and Nehemiah came back to rebuild the temple and the walls in the city, that the Samaritans asked to help. And they were like, sorry, you guys are a mixed breed. You can't help us. And so Ezra kicks them out. Actually dissolves marriages that people had had. Yeah. Yeah, it's in the scriptures. <laughs> the Bible's not a clean book. It's got all kinds of messy stuff because it's full of people, okay? So they actually dissolved marriages. <laughs> Crazy. So guess what? The Samaritans, they went home and said, we're going to build our own temple. <laughs> we're going to create our own thing. And so started this rivalry. It got so bad that there were times that uh, the Caesar and the Roman Empire would have to bring in troops to get them to quit fighting. So when they hear Samaritan, wait, a Samaritan's got compassion? They're barely human. What? This guy's saying a Samaritan is my neighbor? All oh, this is undoing years of mindsets. And years of layers of thought processes that would distance them from other people. So this would have been a shocker 
This would have shocked everybody listening. And he doesn't just have compassion. Look what he does. Verse 34. He had went up to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring olive oil and wine on them. Now get this. Um, These, I guess, had medicinal purposes, obviously. But that's like your precious stuff that you eat. That's not something you pour on somebody half dead and naked. Unless you value them to say, that doesn't belong in my stomach. That belongs on somebody that's suffering. So it's the best he had. He had wine, had a little bit. They didn't have the distillation process there. I know everybody talks about, oh, drinking wine and all this. They didn't have a distillation process. So the wine that they had back in those days was so little of alcohol content that you would have to drink so much to get drunk. That's why they would call it the God God of your belly. or You'd have to do so much excess to get drunk. They didn't have the distillation processes that we have now. So when you're reading wine in the Bible, read it in context with ancient eyes. It's not a license to just go get blasted and hammered and go have a great, great grand old time and talk to everybody how free you are in God's grace. That's just not what it's there for. It's not there. It's not there for that. No distillation processes, very low alcohol content. It was a way to preserve fruit juice. That's what it was for. Was it wine they were drinking? Yes. They weren't drinking Welch's. They were actually fermenting wine. But it wasn't to get drunk. It was to enjoy. It was to celebrate. It was to commemorate things that were special. It wasn't to get in a headspace where we were all messed up and and acting all kinds of crazy. Side note. Pastoral side note. Okay? Is that okay? Okay. I don't care if it's not. I'm saying it. All right. So, he bandages his wounds, pours olive oil and wine on them, and then he put him on his own animal brought him to an inn and took care of him now if he's traveling like this and he's got it like this if he's got silver and he's got an animal and he's got all this stuff this means he was a merchant class and he was traveling on business which means on his animal was his livelihood but he moves his livelihood to make room for a life that he doesn't even know It's like it keeps getting, like Jesus keeps on like stacking it up on us here of like how awesome the Samaritan is. And we're still trying to figure out if he's our neighbor or not. <laughs> it's like it, by the end of the story, you're like, I hope the Samaritan's my neighbor. And when I'm down and out, there's somebody like that that takes care of me. Because if somebody's so worried about their ritual impurity that they can't touch me, I don't care how holy they think they are or what their garments look like or what kind of access they have in a church. Give me a Samaritan who knows how to help somebody when they're in trouble. Please. He didn't need somebody to preach a sermon to him or exegete a Greek or Hebrew text there. He needed somebody that had a heart and would use what they had to help who it was laying down there on the ground. And anyway, it's pretty beautiful. So oil was used medicinally for washing wounds. Wine, we're really not sure why that happened. A lot of the scholars just think, We don't know why he did that. It could have been an attempt for Jesus to say that he was willing to waste 
you know, to help. Maybe it was used to disinfect. I'm not sure. But that really wasn't a very common practice, according to most um, historians. Um, the Jewish people commonly avoided Gentiles, and so um, they would have not wanted the oil on them that would, he could have possibly ingested or touched or got unclean. So think about the mindset when they're hearing this story. They're worried probably more about the Samaritan's wine and oil being poured out on him and making the dead guy unclean than they are the dead guy coming to life and actually being well. See, that's what happens when we get a religious spirit is that we're so worried about being unstained that we miss out on the mission and we undo the blood of Jesus and we actually limit its power by thinking it can't keep me clean or it's going to, I'm going to be in fit. Like we have this sanitary look of Christianity where if I find Jesus, he's just going to scrub me up. Oh yeah, kind of. But it ain't all about just getting scrubbed up and clean, right? It's about living like Jesus lived and by his Holy Spirit moving the way he moved. And, and so it's not just sanitary. It's practical. <laughs> it's like, you don't read about Jesus to cheer for him. You read about Jesus to say, Holy Spirit, make me like that. <laughs> like, I want to do that. Um, and that's what Jesus' command is. When people start being his cheerleader, he's like, greater works than these you're going to do. Don't cheer me on. I want you to do these things. I'm trying to commission you. I'm not trying to get some hand claps. I want you to walk like me in the earth by the Holy Spirit, and by his power. So the Samaritan takes a place of inferiority, puts the man on his animal, and takes him into the nearest place where he can get some help. Now this would have been personal to them, especially those that are acquainted with the scriptures. Um, there is a story, check this out later, and you can fact check me here if we got any fact checkers. Um, 2 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 15. Um, there was a war that broke out between Israel and Judah. And it was basically king of Israel, which I think was uh, Pekah, P-E-K-A-H, and then the king of Judah was Ahaz. And they fought each other. And Israel beat Judah. But God moved on the king's heart and told him to stop. And the soldiers stopped the fighting, took the wounded soldiers, put them on donkeys, and took them to their homes in Judah and left back to Samaria where the capital of Israel was. So he's, he's telling a story, not that's fictitious. He's saying, do you remember when this happened? And those Israelites who set up their capital in Samaria and became Samarians, do you remember when they showed you mercy that time? So he brings them into the reality of what had already happened. And so it's really kind of crazy that he tells the story that way because this is exactly what they did. Um, where are we at? Verse 35. The next day he took out two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever else you spend, I will repay you when I come back 
this way. So he gives them money and then says, next time I'm in town, however long it takes for him to get taken care of, I'm good for it. It's amazing. What a story. Now, he ends the story with a question. You ready? Now, which of these three (laughs) do you think became a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Verse 37, watch this. And the expert in religious law, (laughs) the lawyer said, the one who showed mercy to him. Now watch. So Jesus said, go and do the same. Now, do you notice what he wasn't willing to say there when Jesus asked him which one was the good neighbor? (laughs) He couldn't even say it. (laughs) The one who showed mercy. No, 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 no. I wish Jesus would have said, no, no, no. Which one was that that showed mercy? Uh, the Sam- Sam- ah, the Samaritan. And this is what deliverance looks like. It's willing to say the thing that's true despite how you feel about it and despite your prejudices and your insecurities and everything else. It's being willing to say that's what it is. Still couldn't even say it. The one who showed mercy. Good. It's a terrible story. It's like, no. Samaritan. Because it puts him in the position of this. Because he probably put himself in the heroic position like we all do. But you know who he really was? The guy beat down bloodied and dead in his sins and trespasses. And when you put yourself in that position, who do you wish would come by? Would you look for a priest? Would you care? Would you look for a Levite? Would you care? You'd say somebody with the Spirit of God and compassion come my way and lay hands on me and help me get out of this place. The guy was half dead. He couldn't even articulate a sentence. He couldn't say, I'm good for it. I'll help you. Hey, just get me out of this jam. I got family. No words exchanged in this story. (laughs) Just action. And I love what St. Francis of Assisi says. He says, I love preaching the gospel and sometimes I use words. Because <laughs> ah, the kingdom of God is not with words and great speech. It's with power and demonstration. Wisdom from another age. It moves things. It helps people. So the legal expert is reluctant to confess the Samaritan. So the lawyer here, here's what all lawyers hate to hear. You lost the case on this one, buddy. (laughs) You were on trial, not me. 
And some of us want to put Jesus on trial, but now you're the one on trial. You're the one. And Jesus is trying to get us to see the things um, that are in the way. So a man battered, bereft, a man broken by the sins of others, a man not unlike you and me, left for dead on the side of the road, people walk by, choosing to neglect their hurting neighbor, and then an enemy walked by <laughs> and was the hero. So be careful who you're making the enemy in your story. Because the one you've deemed the enemy could actually be a hero. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can't think of the times I've run people out of my life because I misdiagnosed them. Because I was too insecure, worried they were going to get my spot. Or... And it's like, wow, how foolish. How foolish. So who's our neighbor? Jesus paints a picture of love that bears another's pain. And it displays God's love. Romans 5, 8. And while we were sinners, God demonstrated his love for us by dying on the cross for our sins. A love that doesn't do a background check. A love that sees a need and fills it, finds a hurt, and heals it. So I just still got caught up on this um, and we're going to land this plane, so. Uh, but I, I just couldn't get over the oil and wine thing because the more research I did on it, the less I found anybody had to say about it. And I think there's so much great things in that story that it's like, why would you be concerned with that? But I'm weird like that. Man, if I see something in there, I'm going to get to the bottom of it. I'm that guy. I'm going to investigate. People say, man, you must like to read. I say, no, I hate to read, but I've got to know the answer. I've got to investigate to like, get some kind of, it's just my personality. So I'm investigative. I don't like to read, but I like to do the research. So I was looking around and I was thinking, why does that sound familiar? And where else in the Bible is that mentioned oil and wine together? And then it like came to me. I was like, somewhere in Revelation, oil and wine are mentioned together. And so I'm like, what's going on here? So then I found it. Uh, Google search. Uh, Revelation 6, 5 and 6. Now, this is in the process where these four horsemen are being released. And so, so far, two of them have been released. This is the third horse uh, that's being released. So the first horse was a white horse. So it was like a conqueror. Um, and then the second horse was a red horse, which was like brother was going to turn against brother, and there was just going to be a murderous spirit released as a judgment. And then the third horse uh, was the one we're going to read about right here. It's a black horse. Um, Revelation 6, 5 and 6. Then when I opened, then when the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. So I looked. And here came a black horse. The one who rode it had a balance scale on his hand. Then I heard something like a voice from among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat will cost a day's pay. Three quarts of barley will cost a day's pay. So this was like famine. It's like something small was going to cost a lot. But watch what he says. But don't do damage. <laughs> do not damage the olive oil and the... I'm like, okay, this is getting weirder. I'm on a wild goose chase. What in the world could this possibly mean? So I did a little more digging into this passage. So the third seal represents famine, and this closely parallels 
a drought that happened in AD 92 where a whole day's wages were needed to buy one little ration of food for one person. So no matter how hard you worked, you couldn't get ahead. But do you know what was not affected by that drought? Olive oil and the orchards, the olive orchards and the vineyards. And so I was like, why wasn't that affected? Because they've got roots that go deep enough where they can live on very little water. So I think there's a parallel here of what the church is, that the church is oil, wine, and bandages. And if we'll let our roots get deep into the soil of Jesus Christ's life, then it won't worry how much the drought is. We'll always have healing, provision. We'll all have that. And I know there's uncertain times, but I'm just going to prophesy to the people of God right now that if you'll get your roots deep in Jesus, he's going to see you through every situation. He's going to see you through the next administration. He's going to see you through no matter what happens. If you'll get your roots deep in Jesus, the oil will never run out and the wine will never run out if you use it to the healing of the nations and you use it for the glory of God. It'll never run out. So it's time for the church to get our roots deep and quit worrying about what the world's saying. I'm believing the report of the Lord that no matter how the drought gets, we're going to have oil, we're going to have wine, and we're going to have bandages. And we're going to be healing to the nations. I believe that. I still think the church is the answer. Who else is going to bring the kingdom to earth? Be honest. Who else is going to do it? Man, it's us. We're going to step into the office of kingdom officers, ambassadors of Jesus, able to change atmospheres, change cultures, bring about healing to the darkest places. I'm not naive in believing that. Because we got Jesus. We got the one who created the earth on our side. Like what? Like what are we waiting for? It's like we got all we need. We got Holy Spirit. We got him. He loves us. He sealed us. He's in us. It's like, God, do something else. It's like, um, you got it. <laughs> it's in you. Go use it and see that it works, you know. Or I just feel like we're in this position, and I just feel like the Lord is saying, hey, you guys are olive trees of righteousness and vineyards, and your roots are going to get deep into him, and it doesn't matter if a drought's coming or not. He's going to show you creative ways to navigate and to make it through. Let's pray. Lord, we just pray for each and every person that's here. God, we, God, expand our horizons. God, any bit of prejudice or any bit of insecurity or any bit of whatever, because we've all been hurt by others and carried things that make us think certain ways or, but God, you're so patient and you're so kind. 